Welcome to the Farm Answers Podcast. The Farm Answers Podcast takes a deeper look at projects funded by the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture's Beginning Farm and Rancher Development Program and how they are reaching beginning farmers and ranchers. Hi, John. Welcome to the Farm Answers Podcast. Hello. Glad to be here. Today, I am joined by John Munsell with Virginia Tech, and he's going to talk a little bit about his Beginning Farmer program. But could you start, John, by telling us just a little bit about the work that you do at Virginia Tech and who you all serve? Sure. I'm a professor of forest management uh, in the Department of Forest Resources and Environmental Conservation, and uh, I have an extension appointment as well. Um, So I conduct research and uh, work with people in the community to support their efforts related to all things forest management. Tell me about the project that you received funding for and why was it needed at this time? Well, um, as a professor of forest management, we're not necessarily working in the field. We are um, working in the woods and, you know, there's timber that we we can manage for, canopy. Uh, Of course, there's a whole host of ecosystem services and things that are important, but uh, there are also what are called non-timber forest products and these are goods from the woods, if you will, that uh, have long-standing markets. And uh, they're not timber-specific. Um, they can be shrubs, uh, botanicals, mushrooms, flowers. You know, so a whole host of things that people have long depended upon for their own livelihoods and their own kind of family uh, health and so on and so forth. But also the larger public. Uh, likes access to those products as well. And um, so our focus has really been on working with producers that uh, have an interest in growing and and selling some of those non-timber forest products or those goods from the woods. That's really been our, our area of focus. And, you know, in terms of the beginning farmer and rancher development program, you know, we saw an opportunity to partner with the uh, USDA to support uh, kind of an emerging and growing base of producers. Now, a lot of these products that are not timber specific coming out of the woods have long been harvested in a way that we call like wild crafting or wild harvesting. That the the individual, the person that's going out into the woods to to collect those and then sell didn't have a hand necessarily in terms of planting and kind of stewarding, you know, those species. And so this would be like people who go gather morels in the, the yeah, springtime. That, exactly. That's that's an example. Um, or uh, another one that is popular, you know, kind of in the public consciousness is ginseng, golden seal, particularly here in Appalachia, you know, where these species are native and they source uh, ever growing, you know, nutraceutical supplemental industry. And with that kind of growing demand, there's an interest in terms of the sustainability and the traceability of the production supply chain. And so this is where farming comes in as opposed to wild collecting or wild harvesting. And so our focus really is on working with those individuals that want to farm these products, these goods from the woods, and source them into a supply chain that's increasing in terms of its growth or its scale, but also its um, interest in securing sustainable supply for the future and doing right by the forest resource that they depend upon for those products. That's really cool. So just to make sure I understand too, there's a greater interest in these other, you know, non-timber products, the goods from the woods. So it's almost like a more 
it's a more planful way of harvesting those items. And that's that's what your program seeks to do. So so are people literally like going into the woods now and like planting things or starting to propagate these, you know, whether it's the ginseng or I'm sure there's a whole host of goods from the woods. Well, that's a great question because the spectrum of opportunity when it comes to forest farming, you know, on one end, it can be uh, someone who's land secure and has land ownership and and has woodlands and they can go in and plant and grow and sell. But, you know, given the tradition of wild harvesting, there's also uh, a portion of what we consider forest farming to be wild stewardship. And that entails then you know, working with existing plant populations or mushroom uh, populations to ensure that that is sustainable. It's not exploited. And so we cut across in terms of the individuals we work with. Some are landless, but have an interest in stewarding, sustaining those sources of, of you know, economic revenue and opportunity for them, but also those that have access securely to woodlands they own or lease and plant out there as well and continue to kind of steward and, and source into the supply chain. I think it sounds really cool. And I think it's neat too that you're connecting it with the rest of the sub- supply chain to make some sort of value added product, I imagine. Can you tell me a little bit specifically about the Beginning Farmer program? So what did that work look like to introduce people to this and to help them begin their, their journey? Well, we had to look back because there are people that have long grown in a forest farming setting some of these materials that can be sold but the 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 scale was small but the interest was large so you know we didn't have much of a problem in terms of gaining access to the individuals people that that want to come and and learn about this but it wasn't starting from scratch and so what we were able to do was assemble some of those that have deep traditional knowledge uh, around uh, production and create kind of a, a knowledge exchange uh, with those folks that, that are doing it and those that are interested in, in practicing forest farming and make those connections. And then by virtue of having some institutions and non-governmental organizations that have long focused on goods from the woods, we were able to kind of assemble a nice network um, using the the sponsorship and create a, a, a huge membership base of people in our coalition, many of whom have planted out in the last five to seven years. We're also standing up a program that's focused on wild harvesters to bring training to that segment of the supply base so that we don't push aside those that are landless just for those that have land. But we want that larger community to, to be in existence and to continue to, to share knowledge. And as I noted earlier, work to, to meet the needs of the industry in terms of you know, long-term predictability and, and product quality and sustainability of the resource that they depend upon for their retail products. And with that industry growing, there's ever more interest in that. It's definitely a growing industry. And just to clarify, so it kind of was two, like a twofold approach. So doing some like matching and mentorship. Is that right? That was part of it. And then the other part was just providing tools to those that were doing the wild harvesting and didn't have their own land. Correct. Yeah. And I mean, I think you, you've struck on something earlier that's really important in all of this, which is value added. 
they're around some of these products that, like I've noted earlier, long been harvested largely, almost entirely in a wild context. The, the prices paid for the material have been pretty low. And so this, this forest farming movement is kind of pushing the boundaries in terms of increasing the prices paid for the raw material because you have that predictability and sustainability and community investment tied to the transaction of selling down the value chain. So that's been another thing that we've seen kind of emerge out of our work is the, the recognition that paying uh, premium prices for material that's farmed has a lot of value uh, across the, the spectrum of the industry and pushing down to communities and the benefits that you realize there as well. And in Appalachia, that's that's very important because we have scores of distressed counties and distressed communities, and they're forest dependent, many of them, and have long depended upon some of that revenue that they can generate by harvesting. But by recognizing the place of forest farming and all of that and supporting it through our training, uh, that's where we see this kind of evolution in terms of interest in greater investments in the communities where, where the raw material comes from. It sounds like it would really help grow the local economy if you're able to create some sort of value-added product and the time is right to do something like that too, I think, in terms of consumer trends. Can you name a couple of the products that your farmers make with, with the things, the goods from the woods that they're gathering? One is black cohosh. And, you know, I mean, I mentioned ginseng earlier. And when it comes to botanicals, woodland botanicals and the kind of uh, global herbal supplement market, Appalachia is the, the heart of production. Uh, um, Janine Davis, North Carolina State, published that 50% of the woodland species that source the global herbal supplement market are native to Appalachia. And, and we think about ginseng and it is, you know, it's obviously iconic. But there are scores of other botanical species that are harvested. And a couple that far surpass ginseng in terms of volume are black cohosh and golden seal. And uh, black cohosh, as an example, like you asked about, you know, it's harvested for its roots. And the, the product generally that comes out of the constituents that are extracted from the roots, the, the, the natural products, are associated with menopausal treatments. So there's a supplement that can be taken along with pharmaceuticals that they're prescribed for women in later life that are dealing with some of the issues associated with the menopause. And uh, so that's that's an example of one. But, you know, we also have edibles. I mean, ramps is a is a great example of an iconic species that is growing in terms of its demand in the culinary industry. It goes by other names too, uh, ramsum, the wild leek, allium trichocum. Uh, it, it's an edible with an interesting garlic and onion palette, and it's used in the culinary industry primarily. But, you know, it's it's and also celebrated uh, locally and culturally because it's a spring ephemeral. And so that that species shoots up its its leaves to capture uh, sunlight before the canopy's leafed out. And then it dies back once the sun goes and it goes dormant. Yeah, that, that species in particular is one that uh, has been growing. But locally, why is it celebrated? Because it was some of the first greens that you could get your hands on 
in the region following wintertime where we have grocery stores and mass transportation and all those types of things. However, it's also gained a lot of traction in the, in the culinary industry. I love to cook. That sounds, it sounds delicious. So it's kind of like, you know, looking for horseradish or something in the spring or does it come out of the snow? Right. I mean, again, thinking about what we're doing, we're actually working with people that are planting seeds and bulbs or the rhizome to create a, a bed of, of ramps that can be sustained over time to source into uh, the supply chain. Can you tell me, maybe, do you have one example of a farmer that was able to to start doing this as a result of your program? Uh, one example is in Southern Virginia. And th- this is kind of a, a good example because it's a blend between the wild stewardship, but also the intentional cultivation that can expand production on site. And uh, that farmer uh, was able to take a, a stand of, of a botanical and that was growing naturally work to then expand that out, then develop a management plan uh, with the support of the the coalition to sell it at a price premium for the raw material that was being harvested. So that's, you know, one example, black coat, the focus species, which I noted earlier is harvested much greater rates in the wild without a lot of traceability compared to something like ginseng. So a lot of volume of black cohosh coming out of the woods, but this farmer in particular was able to by virtue of the management plan and, you know, some attention to detail and uh, longer term vision, companies were interested in buying that material because of their, you know, social responsibility and sustainability accounting that they're working on to add value to their products on the retail shelf. Well, yeah, good attention to detail, right? To be able to manage that. And I'm imagining keeping records and documentation and all exactly. of that so that yep. they could show the the traceability of it all, right? That's very on trend right now. And I imagine that not just with your type of products, but many products that the traceability is only going to grow. So I think that's a, it's a really great story. And I think it sounds like this particular farmer really took advantage of something that's on trend, but also just found a way to differentiate themselves, which is what you got to do, right? If you really want to be successful in the value added space. As we wrap up here, I would like to ask what's uh, what's going to be next for your program? How are you going to continue to engage with beginning farmers? Well, we, we have um, a, a large vision and some of the individuals that are in our, our network have carried that forward. I mean, we're specific to Appalachia, but one of the kind of most impactful outcomes of our work is that it's being replicated in other areas. And uh, the uh, Northeast Forest Farming Coalition is being sponsored by the USDA uh, through a different program, but that's out of Yale University. And they have started to kind of carry forward with some of the work that we've done here uh, and help us evolve more regionally beyond Appalachia, kind of the eastern side of the United States. So we're we're growing and our network is strong and um, we have other irons in the fire in terms of funding opportunities, but also a a longer term vision of of permanence with a a national association that will support forest farmers and continue this work. So, you know, thinking about our our kind of two rounds of funding and where we've landed today, I couldn't be here without USDA support, of course, but ultimately we would like to see something that is independent and permanent in terms of being able to provide these services for forest farmers, not just in Appalachia, not just in the Northeast, but across the country. And so that's one of our long-term visions and we're working on that now with some 
separate funding in concert with wrapping up our BFRDP program that we have in place. And we have a regional conference, which will probably be much larger than regional coming up in uh, in about a year. And that's going to be a really critical transition point where we envision proposing a framework for a national council. And we can have something like the coalition we have in Appalachia move into kind of a working group, a regional working group model where that knowledge exchange continues and we have industry investment at greater rates and we just continue to grow. It's really exciting to hear that your model is being replicated, that that speaks volumes about the quality of the program. And again, just that there really is an interest right now in all of this. Good work, John. I'm excited for you. I think you're going to have way more than a regional response. Where can people find you on the web and on social media? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think a one-stop shop is AppalachianForestFarmers.org. That is our clearinghouse website. We have links to all of our social media platforms. We have a calendar. We have all of our special initiatives described there. We have all of our resources embedded there as well. So if you go to AppalachianForestFarmers.org, that's where you can find out about all of the work that's happened dating back to 2011 prior to BFRDP funding and, and where we're headed in the future. Um, and, you know, we have, as an example, a YouTube channel that's been in existence for about eight years with 25,000 subscribers, I think 4 million or so views and just scores of videos where we have gone, like I noted earlier, to those individuals that have that deep kind of traditional knowledge to showcase the work that's being done by them, but also transfer technique and you know can learn about how to uh, divide rhizomes and how properly to plant and uh, how to create value-added products and so on and so forth. So I encourage you to go to that site. That's where you can launch and um, explore all the, the things that we've pulled together over the years to increase awareness and knowledge and those types of things. It's so nice to be able to see visually like how to do some of these things and to have somebody who's skilled showing you how to do it. So for sure, check out the website. All right, John, I want to thank you for being a part of the podcast today. And also thank you just for the great work that you're doing in Appalachia. It sounds, um, it just sounds really cool. You know, it's something I would want to be a part of. So, so thank you. And thank you for being here today. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Farm Answers podcast. This episode was hosted by Betty Burning, produced by Curtis Monken and Jeff Reisdorfer. Listen and subscribe to the Farm Answers podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major streaming platforms. Tell your smart device to play the Farm Answers podcast. To learn more about this USDA NIFA BFRDP project and other projects, visit farmanswers.org. The Farm Answers podcast and farmanswers.org are funded by the United States Department of Agriculture, National Institute of Food and Agriculture, and are a product of the Center for Farm Financial Management at the University of Minnesota. 